Welcome to the Taking Cancer On podcast, brought to you by Beringer Ingelheim and presented by me, Sebastian Hermelin. In this series, we seek to demystify the role of Big Pharma in developing cancer treatments, and in doing so, I want to take you on a deep dive into the lives of our very special guests. What are their North Stars? Why are they so committed to what they do? And what are their hopes for the future? Join us on this journey and remember to subscribe to the series and share the podcast with others who are inspired to take cancer on. Today we start at the very early research and development stage, focusing on a cancer target called KRAS, which we'll get to in just a second. But for now, I'm pleased to introduce our expert guest on this subject, Dr. Daryl McConnell, Senior Vice President and Research Site Head at Beringer Ingelheim, Austria. Welcome, Daryl. Thank you, Sebastian. Given that this is our first episode, I, I think it makes sense for me to introduce myself too. Um, uh, my name is Sebastian Hermelin. Uh, I was born and raised in Sweden. I still live here uh, and I'm the co-founder of the War on Cancer app, essentially a social network app for everyone affected by cancer. Um, my background is essentially in finance and sales, but five years ago, my best friend was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, uh, and both him and myself thought that he was not going to survive this. Uh, and with our combined experiences, um, we started the War on Cancer app. So it's a social networking app where people can get and find inspiration, hope, and exchange experiences with each other. Um, so... I guess we could say we're sort of in the same business. We're trying to improve the world and the lives of those affected by cancer. Uh, but we also come from vastly different backgrounds. So before we start, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are, where you're from, and what you do? Yes, indeed. Thank you, uh, Sebastian. As you, as you said, I'm uh, the research site head for uh, Boehringer's site here in, in Vienna, Austria. Um, have the privilege of, uh, uh, well, looking after, I think they look after me more than I look after them, but a wonderful team of, of, of scientists, really pioneers. Um, and, uh, yeah, my journey, uh, obviously from my accent, uh, not uh, Austrian, but I uh, was born in Australia and uh, studied there, worked, uh, worked there, and moved to uh, Austria some, some 20 years ago where I joined uh, Joint Boehringer. I'm a I'm a chemist by training, and uh, I think this seeing the the challenges in trying to come up with uh, drugs for cancer, particularly against these these so-called undruggable targets, uh, seeing that that really is a chemistry problem at its heart. I think that's what really um, yeah motivates me, and uh, and and is where I found my spot here together with the team to to find drugs against these undruggable targets. And our kind producers have asked us to bring an item uh, with us that explains a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. So could you share with us what you have brought? Thanks, uh, thanks Sebastian. I've, I've brought this lock and a key. This uh, teaches you how to, how to pick locks, basically. Um, and I actually carry this around yeah, basically with me all the time. I, I use it uh, in when I'm giving talks and presentations um, to really explain what the essence is of, uh, of drug discovery, and that is, um, you know, we have, I think, 50,000 proteins in our body, 
um, something goes wrong with these proteins and they cause disease and these proteins have locks on them. Uh, and it's our job actually uh, in drug discovery to find keys, molecular keys that actually fit into these locks uh, and typically turn these disease-causing proteins off. So I also use it um, just to remind myself of uh, yeah, what my actual job is in, assessment, in, in essence, and that's uh, yeah, a molecular locksmith, if you like. Very nice. And I, myself, I brought a golf ball. Uh, I don't know if you play golf, Daryl. I used to. I uh, no career for me there. <laughs> yeah, no, no career for me either. But I, I try to spend my free time playing golf uh, around here in Sweden, uh, and I think it's it's an interesting sport because I'm really bad at it. But for some reason, I continue doing it. And the, I mean, the whole purpose for me is not to be on the PGA Tour, but it's to it's to get that one hole in one, where you mm-hmm. get the ball to the flag, into the hole in just one shot. Uh, and when I get to that point, I will probably quit. And I, But it's, it's that kind of breakthrough that you're searching for, right? So I thought that was a, a good thing to bring. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're certainly, um, the, whole, the whole idea of drug discovery, you know, discovering a drug, it's, it's a breakthrough um, for patients. For the outside world, it probably looks like sort of incremental changes over time. But really, behind the scenes in drug discovery, you know, we have drought periods where, you know, we, nothing moves forward. Uh, but we also have those moments where a breakthrough happens, you know, your, your whole, whole in one. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's what uh, every researcher lives for. It's perhaps a little bit different. We, you know, we can't retire because, you, you know, there's always uh, diseases to cure. We always need to come up with better drugs. So, um, you know, once we, we sort of tend to celebrate those breakthroughs, I think, far too quickly because yeah. we're sort of aware as research, researchers the next breakthrough is way and, I, and I'm very happy to hear that you're, that you're not about to quit when you reach your big breakthrough. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you came to be a researcher? It just happened over time, really. You know, I was always jealous uh, in, in school and even university. You know, I was jealous of these people who knew exactly what they were going to be. You know, I, people, I had no idea, really. I sort of I got that love chemistry in, in university, you know, this, this um, because it's... it's it's sort of two things in one, this, uh, you know, molecular locksmith, we, we have to design things, um, you know, in our brains, but we also have to get in the lab with our hands and actually synthesize these molecules, actually make them. And that, it was that combination, I think, that got me really uh, excited about, uh, about chemistry. So, Daryl, can we talk a little bit more about how cancer research has changed during the last 20, 30, 40 years uh, or the last 20 years since since you began in this industry? Yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's been some waves uh, historically in, in cancer. Um, surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, uh, they're the three, three I think that everyone's quite familiar with, uh, that really formed the basis of, uh, of being able to start to treat some cancers. Now we're living in a in a phase where I think it's very exciting because we have uh, we have two I would argue two new waves coming through. Um, one is um, really starting to be able to uh, drug these so-called undruggable oncogenes, these these proteins um, that drive cancers. Now I call them cancers big four. There's this it's four big ones. They uh, they cause more than 50% of all cancers um, uh, and have been known since the 80s. Uh, 
and we're starting to learn now how to drug those, uh, but also immune oncology at the same time. We, we finally, this promise of turning the immune system back on so that it can see tumors again and eliminate them. Um, we've, we've had the first huge successes in that uh, space. Um, so those are the two waves of, of next uh, therapies for cancer patients um, that we're working on now. And from the sound of that, I mean, 20 or 30 years ago, cancer was just cancer. And what you mentioned just now is that uh, it is essentially 100 or maybe even 200 different diseases, right? Exactly. Uh, We're digging deeper and deeper into the understanding of, of the biology. Uh, the complexity of biology and the human body is, is uh, unbelievable. And we have to, have to really work, work hard on being able to um, translate what we see you know, in the laboratory to what we see uh, in, in the clinic. So I think that we need to keep driving forward. The more we understand, the better drugs we can design. So you mentioned cancer's big four, and I'm, I think that I know that you're referring to oncogenes, right? Could you tell us a little bit more and for the listeners, just what are oncogenes and what are, what are, what are cancer's big four? Yeah, no, thanks, Sebastian. So, so cancer, it's a, cancer is a disease of our genes. So it's our, our, our cells normally, they behave, they do everything they're supposed to do. Uh, they do mutate. We do get mutations in our cells, in our genes of our cells all the time, but they're usually spotted quickly and those cells are discarded. Um, and most of those mutations are actually completely harmless and don't, don't matter. There are some proteins um, where if, if a mutation happens in them, they uh, cause cancer. And, and these, this is what we call oncogenes. Um, KRAS is, is one of the biggest ones. Typically, cancer is the accumulation of, you know, let's say five to seven of these mutations over 30 to 40 years. That's why it's more prevalent in, in um, older people. But you must have this oncogenic mutation to drive it. Um, and that, that is the key, um, uh, the key disease-causing protein locks that we need to find keys for. Can you tell us a little bit more about your research right now uh, and why it is so important? Yeah, and I'd love to. So we, we, um, it was back in 2012, actually. We set, uh, set ourselves the goal um, really to go after these big four. Um, it, was, it was a bit, if I could uh, digress briefly, it was a little bit um, naive at the time. Um, we didn't really understand how difficult it was going to be. Uh, it was a little bit like um, coming from Australia to... Uh, to Austria, I, I thought 30 or 40 German words would be more than sufficient to <laughs> communicate. I, <laughs> when I landed, I found out uh, I was drastically uh, wrong. Um, but sometimes I think this, this naivety is actually quite good to, to really be bold enough to, to take on something big. Um, we, we, we really didn't have an idea which one would be the first one where we'd get traction on. Um, turns out uh, it's KRAS that uh, we've really managed to get uh, traction on um, and, and uh, we've built uh, quite a sizable uh, portfolio and, of projects around KRAS now. Similar to cancer being multiple diseases, it's not just one KRAS mutation, which adds to the complexity. Um, if you take the top nine mutations of KRAS, they make up about 90% of, of KRAS-driven cancers. So Really, we've got to find drugs for all nine of these 
Um, and just to just to understand, perhaps for for the listeners, how uh, prevalent and how important KRS cancers are. One in every seven of all cancers is driven by KRS. So one in every seven patients, okay. their cancer has a KRS mutation. We really need to provide KRS keys, KRS drugs for that. So, so the nine uh, most prevalent uh, KRAS mutations um, basically make up for 90% of one in seven cancer patients Correct. globally, right? Exactly. That's why there's so much excitement, That's of very, course, very also around the KRAS. Uh, KRAS is, uh, has been deemed the beating heart of cancer because it actually looks like a heart and it does actually beat between two states, the on-state and the off-state. What it does do is it sends signals from the outside of a cell down into the, the nucleus, to the, to the centre of the cell. Um, and it's actually uh, one of the most important signalling nodes um, in cellular communication. Uh, and, that's, and, and what happens in cancer is actually one amino acid, one position on KRAS is actually mutated. Just one. Uh, and what that actually does is it essentially locks KRAS in the on state. It still beats a little bit, but for the majority of the time, it's actually on. Uh, but in a normal cell, it's actually off most of the time. Uh, and that's what causes cancer, this signaling. You can think about this uh, perhaps as a, as a volume, you know, on a radio or something. You know, the volume inside a cell of signaling actually gets turned way up. So in a normal cell, perhaps the volume is of KRAS signaling is volume of one or two. Okay. Um, in a cancer cell, it's actually up to, to nine or ten. Uh, and that's what drives this the cancer cell dividing much more quickly um, and, and causing tumors. And KRAS can be found in multiple sorts of cancers, right? Exactly. So it's, uh, um, I mean, it's almost in every pancreatic cancer. Okay. It's, it's something, you know, it's 90, 95% of pancreatic cancer, cancers uh, are driven by KRAS. Um, it's, you know, it's around 40% in colorectal cancers. It's about 30% in lung cancers. These are the three, the three big diseases in cancer that uh, are driven by KRAS. And, and, I mean, just a question out of curiosity. Do you know which KRAS mutations causes which forms of cancer or... Yes, that's it's a mix for each one. So it's not it's not um, you know lung cancer has one mutation um, and pancreatic cancer has another. But there is there are differences. Yeah. Um, you know this this KRAS G twelve C mutation, for example, is most prevalent in lung cancer, and we understand that it's it's caused uh, largely from smoking. Um, so that's understood. Pancreatic cancer. Um, uh, has a, a probably the most difficult mutant uh, called uh, KRAS G12R. It's about it's not the majority of pancreatic cancer, but significant. Can you explain a little bit more um, so that I understand as well? What, what, what is the what has been so tough in sort of attacking or finding a, a way to penetrate these cells? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's a great question. It's it's wonderful to look back now and understand what we did wrong and historically. So, it, you know, I mean, KRAS itself um, was, well, we knew it drew, drew, drove cancers uh, in 1982. 
Um, so it's almost 40 years, right, that we've been yeah. trying this. And for, th- for 30 years, basically nothing worked. But if I stick to sort of the lock and key analogy, um, one of our actually very successful strategies in drug discovery, I, I call it um, using old keys for new locks. So when we, when we do a drug discovery program, you know, we make a lot of keys. You know, we might make 10,000 of them. Um, most of them don't work. You know, trial and error in science is, is sort of daily business. Um, and we don't throw those keys away. We actually keep them and we store them in what we call libraries here. Um, uh, and we, every time we get a new drug discovery program, a new lock, a new protein that causes diseases, a disease, um, we take out all the old keys we've got and see if any of them fit into that new lock. Uh, and that actually surprisingly works for quite a lot of uh, uh, a lot of projects, uh, and we find good starting points. Um, it didn't work with KRAS. So, uh, you know, for 30 years we tried old keys into KRAS. They don't fit. Uh, and that's why basically we were stuck until a new approach, uh, a new, new approach in chemistry came out where we actually use fragments of keys. So we actually chop the key up in little bits see if those keys fit into a bit of the lock. Uh, and that's actually what's what brought the breakthrough. You know, suddenly when we started doing this, I mean, to everyone's complete surprise, um, we didn't find just one lock on KRS. We actually found two. They're, they're not very good locks, I have to say. <laughs> you know, there's locks that are really good to make drugs with. We can be fairly quick quick at getting drug candidates. And there are other locks which, uh, which are, you know, sort of, shallow and, and flat and things but um you know if you don't have any locks you've got no chance of getting a key and now we've got those two locks yeah um, it's up to us to find the keys and i mean when it comes to cancer research we have researched cancer for some decades now with some progress i mean more people are surviving and living with cancer now than 20 or even 10 years ago would you consider research as a race between different actors or is it a race amongst several actors trying to achieve the same goal and what i'm trying to ask here is where do you see yourself and Boehringer Ingelheim uh, and compared to other actors in this specific space when it comes to KRAS research? Great question. I mean, yeah, competition is um, it's different in drug discovery. You know, it's not, um, it's not like a, a running race, you know, a marathon or something, you know. Uh, at the end of the running race, it's very clear whether you're won or you're lost. It's, it's very clear who your competition is. Um, and at any point in time during the race, you know exactly where you're at. Um, that's not the case with uh, with drug discovery. You know, it's all, um, you know, everyone's uh, forging ahead, trying to work on their drug discovery programs. We share as much as we can with the outside world to, to help drive the science in general. Um, but you really don't know where things are at in total. And, um, you know, I think the real competitor here that we're we're trying to beat is the disease causing protein itself. It's KRAS. You know, um, we've we've got to we've got to really focus on that as the goal uh, and and bring that forward. Every success, um, whether it be from us or from from other other companies, you know, is a is a success for patients. And uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna really come up with a, a proper solution for, for all KRS-driven cancers with just one drug. Uh, we're going to need multiple drugs. We're not going to be successful if we don't have 
lots of people trying to be the best. Um, so I, yeah. I, I think um, I always am, uh, am cautious about making a big deal about Burring are competing with other companies because really, um, you know, it's success for the patients and a bit of a bit of competition is good anyway. You know, it pushes pushes our teams here to to do the science better, um, and uh, yeah, we learn from each other anyway. Yeah, and just for some someone that is outside of this uh, life science industry, like myself. What would you, I mean, if we go back to the analogy of this being a race uh, towards a goal, uh, and just it's, it's just an individual race for Beringer Ingelheim, uh, and there's obviously some sort of finish line. So when do you think that finish line is? Uh, and what are the necessary, necessary steps to get there? Yeah, finish line's tough in drug discovery, right? Because it's, uh, especially in cancer. Um, so I uh, I'm not sure if we'll ever really get to a finish line um, or if we get there, we might not realise it until later. Um, don't forget um, one of the sort of characteristics of, of cancer cells is that they, they, they can mutate quickly and become resistant to therapy. So we've, we've really got to just be a bit cautious of, of that. But in terms of uh, perhaps we could talk about sort of big steps, big milestones that I think, we as as Beringer, but also the industry needs to achieve, particularly around KRAS. Um, you know, we've got the first drugs in the clinic now working, uh, being tested on on KRAS driven cancers in, in in patients. This is a okay. This is the this is a big milestone uh, that we've achieved. You know, this was even twenty years ago completely unthinkable. Uh, there's actually just uh, just as an aside, there's actually two types of. Uh, of drug of KRAS drugs that are being pursued. There's the there are the selective ones, so the ones that are focusing on one of these nine uh, KRAS mutations. Um, uh, but there are also concepts out there looking at so-called pan KRAS inhibitors, so uh, oh. drugs that would aim to try and address all nine of these top uh, top KRAS mutations in one go, which would obviously you know, if we could achieve that, it would be fantastic. I, I, I suspect that we will have a, a mix of these sort of drugs depending on, um, you know, which locks <laughs> are easier to drug. Um, and I think that's, that's where the next milestone uh, is, is going to come. Uh, having the first drug there approved will be absolutely fantastic. Um, and having the first pan-KRAS concept approved uh, yeah. Where we can really have a drug for the for the whole population, I think those would be the two big milestones that I'm really looking forward to. This space is so huge, and there's a lot of collaborations going on. And collaboration and co-creation is is necessary, I think, to tackle one of the biggest diseases uh, ever, which is cancer. So, so how do you view collaborate collaboration in general, and uh, who do you collaborate with? It's a really important point. It's it's absolutely central. Um, you know, gone are the days where pharmaceutical companies locked up their doors and kept everything secret and did everything by themselves. Um, there are, you know, lots and lots of clever people out there um, and, lot, and lots of diversity to tap into. So uh, that's really core to our strategy. I think we've, uh, we've, we've really pushed that over the years. You know, I mentioned we started, uh, you know, trying to drug KRAS and the Big Four in 2012. Um, so we actually reached out to uh, Steve Fessick, uh, 
who's who's now at uh, Vanderbilt University, um, who is uh, really a pioneer on a number of fronts. One of which being these fragments, these little bits of keys. You know, he he was really the, the person who who pioneered that and showed how to, how to work. So I said, why don't we give him a call and get him out to Vienna? And, and we did that. You know, we got him out here and we had him two days. You know, and he really shared with us his, his experience and, um, you know, and that, that was just a consultancy meeting and that's grown into actually three collaborations. And, you know, we have many, many other uh, collaborations in, in other fields. We've got a big, big collaboration with the colleagues at MD Anderson, uh, really trying to push the clinical um, uh, area here in, in the KRS field. So, yeah, it's really, really central and, uh, and it's all about relationships. It's all about, you know, yeah. like minds wanting to achieve the same thing um, and, uh, and the relationships that are behind that. Yeah. And I mean, in, in, in an attempt to make everything that we've talked about more concrete for all of our listeners out there uh, that, that see sort of, that have hopes that your research and Beringer Ingelheim's research can actually help them uh, in the future. Can you give us some hope for the research that you're conducting now? And where do you see uh, sort of crass treatments, I guess, in uh, three, five, or 10 years' time? I mean, we're always a bit cautious of, of, as researchers, right? With, but then, you know, we're cautious because we understand how difficult this is and the uncertainties that still face us. Um, yeah. But there, I, I, I tend to perhaps be a little bit uh, bolder in selling, selling hope because, you know, we, that's what we're, uh, we're driving for in the short term. We, KRAS, I can, you know, anyone um, out there who's, who's interested, you know, we, we will be able to drug the majority of the KRAS mutants. That I, is fantastic. We will definitely be able to do this. We need to be. We, we we need to learn a little bit from history and start to get ahead of the game and not do things as sequential as we've done in the past. So we need to be um, now thinking about the combinations that we're going to need for those. You know, we can't deliver the first KRS drug as a single agent and then in, in ten years' time come up with the perfect combination partner to combat resistance, for example. You know, we really need to be uh, getting these. Uh, you know these these this, this package of uh, medicines that we need to find the ideal treatments compressed together. That means we have to take a bit more risk, and we have to explore more broadly in parallel before we can pick the winners. Um, but I think uh, that's that. There's there's real hope there. I do remind everyone here in the team: uh, the patients are waiting. If if we make decisions earlier. Um, you know, that means patients uh, could get those medicines uh, quicker. But we will, KRS is druggable. This undruggable dogma is gone. That is very good news. And I'm, I'm, actually, <clears throat> I'm actually happy that you're able to, to give some hope uh, in this podcast. I mean, I work with patients basically on a daily basis. Uh, and what I see from them is that they need hope and they want hope because that's what keeps them going. Uh, and from the industry, sometimes it's uh, the focus is more on not giving false hope than giving hope. And I, I always tend to say that I don't think there is such a thing as false hope. There is either hope or there's no hope. And everybody understands that hope is better than no hope. 
So uh, yeah. thank you for that. I just I just want to say that we, we our goal is to deliver a lot more than hope, right? We yes. we want to really provide medicines that make a make a big difference. So I and you know uh, if as we're doing that, um, you know if we can share where we're at, what we're doing, what's coming up. And if that builds builds some hope for patients, then that's that's a wonderful bonus. Yeah, and I just going back to the very beginning uh, of this uh, of our chat. Basically, um, you mentioned that um, you will not quit. So, what comes after KRAS? Yeah, we never quit. Don't worry. Our researchers no. are <laughs> we're a stubborn, stubborn lot. Um, yeah, now there's there's certainly more to do. There's certainly more to do. Um, KRAS is big, though. I mean, uh, uh, I'll give a little bit of a picture beyond KRAS. But um, one thing we we can't stop short on KRAS either. You know, the, uh, and I'm not sure if um, everyone understands the the enormity um, of the task to really provide something for all KRAS uh, cancer patients. So we, we've we really got to continue to push things over the next, you know, it, I think it's going to take us one or two decades to really um, get there. Um, so we, we, we can't stop short and just sort of think the first, you know, a couple of drugs is going to do the trick. It's, it's going to need a much bigger effort than that. Um, but uh, certainly, you know, I mean, if you take um, beta-catenin, for example, it actually, you know, it even looks like an armadillo, the, the actual protein, because uh, it curls up to protect itself. Uh, this, uh, it's, it's a so-called Wnt pathway, and it causes a, very, a lot of colorectal cancer, cancers, almost all. Um, and the number of patients for beta-catenin are basically equal in number to KRAS. Um, you know, so we, that, that is, you know, we've really got to, uh, make, make progress on, on beta-catenin and the Wnt pathway as well. It's, uh, it's more, even more difficult than KRAS. Um, but there's, you know, there's some early, early ideas out there. Uh, and, uh, I think given how far we've come, uh, with chemistry in the last uh, decade or so, I think, um, I think we'll find a solution there too. And if there is if there is one thing you would like to say to um, to everyone that is listening that has been or is affected by cancer today, what would that be? How would you how would you like to end this podcast and making sure that they know about what your work right now? Well, my message would be: we're we're doing our best, and uh, and we're never satisfied uh, that we're doing well enough that's the limiting factor how good are we as as human beings as as researchers um that's the limiting factor and we've got to challenge ourselves so rest assured we 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 push that every day that's very very promising and uh, with that i would like to thank you daryl for uh, sharing some of your insights sharing the research journey that you're on uh, and also sharing hope for the many listeners out there Thanks very much, Sebastian. It takes a certain kind of person to commit themselves to early research, especially when their area of interest has long been considered undruggable. But that's exactly what Dr. Daryl McConnell and the team at Beringer Ingelheim have done and continue to do with their KRAS research. 
The discovery of drug candidates for new therapeutic concepts is the first key stepping stone towards getting treatments to the patients who need them the most. And in this instance, a breakthrough with KRAS could mean improved treatment options for one in seven cancer patients across the globe. As we heard, there are several KRAS mutations which need drugging, and the team over at BI are pursuing concepts that both selectively target individual KRAS mutations, but are also pursuing pan-KRAS approaches, which will target all nine KRAS mutations with a single drug. Many thanks again to Daryl for joining me today, and I'm sure we can all agree that it's been fascinating to hear from you and learn about the work being done over at BI. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode, where we will start to explore some of the later stages of drug development. To keep up to date on new podcast episodes, you can follow at Böhringer on Twitter or at Böhringer Ingelheim on Facebook. And today's guest, Daryl, can be found on at D underscore B underscore McConnell on Twitter. And you can find myself on at Seb Hermelin on either Instagram or Twitter. See you next time. Bye bye.